Welcome to Tradecraft. International trade makes headlines, especially when disputes arise among countries. Business is on the front lines of these disputes, but they are waged over politics and law. Join host Colin Janik in conversation with trade expert and Georgetown University professor Mark Bush as Tradecraft takes an in-depth look at trade issues making headlines today and the ones that will be making headlines tomorrow. This is Tradecraft. The national security exception, it's all the rage today, especially amidst all the talk of reshoring supply chains in the wake of COVID-19. We here at Tradecraft actually took up the national security exception way back in episode 14, and we're coming back to it in our 48th episode because a lot has happened since way back in episode 14. First up, we have a second verdict, namely Saudi Arabia protection of IPRs or intellectual property rights, that's DS-567. That verdict came in from the panel in June of 2020. Beyond the formal litigation though, we've also seen national security invoked a ton in committee work at the World Trade Organization. For example, in responding to a cybersecurity review of network products, China invoked national security as a reason for conducting itself in the way that many countries, including the United States, felt was discriminatory. Ironically, China was the one, however, in its WTO reform proposal to urge a tightening of the disciplines and a curbing of the abuses of the national security exception. But it really is COVID-19, the talk of reshoring global supply chains for medical equipment and supplies for a variety of products that really begs attention to the national security exception. Because what you hear is this language that somehow the national security exception waives any and all concerns for abiding by global trade rules. And the language gets down to the point where it's about redefining national security for a post-COVID world. That maybe national security just requires a little bit of finessing. That if we expand the definition to include things like gearing up for PPE or pharmaceuticals, et cetera, that suddenly we have within our reach the ability to use the national security exception as an affirmative legal defense where the country has been found to violate other obligations under the WTO. So here's the question, what's the bar? Where is the bar net of the litigation that we've seen to date? Now, before we gauge where the bar is, the obvious question is, so what? The WTO is dead, right? Well, no. First of all, it wasn't dead even under the Trump administration, and Lighthizer had been famously quoted as saying this summer that if the WTO didn't exist, he'd have to help create it. But moreover, Biden is likely in his administration to give the WTO more attention, not least because he wants closer relations with allies, and that will require more engagement at the multilateral level at the World Trade Organization. So again, if we take the WTO at face value, where is the bar? But let's say we don't take the WTO at face value. What would the world look like if everyone had recourse to national security on anything they wanted? We're seeing a glimpse 
of how frequently we'd see the invocation of national security. So it's not far-fetched to imagine how things might shape up. But at first, let's stick with the WTO is going to work. The WTO is functioning right now, even if only one level of the two-tier legal system is operating. What is the bar? The argument that I want to make in this episode is that we've learned a lot, but we've also come up short in what we could have learned to date. The biggest gap, in my view, is the definition of essential security interests. Now, that's not quite the same thing as a definition of national security. It's not even correlated with it considers necessary, which really was the star of the show back in episode 14. What I want to propose is that there should be a test on essential security interests. The language in the two disputes in which we've seen a verdict to date have given us a sense for what this might look like, but we haven't gotten there. And I want to go further. I want to argue that what we really need is a parallel interpretation to what we have under the sanitary and phytosanitary agreement where we talk about something called an ALOP, an appropriate level of protection. In my view, the ALOP is really fundamentally the same thing as establishing essential security interests. Again, neither case has gotten there, but the language is there. And to firm up what we mean by essential security interests will go a long way in raising the bar further on the use of national security as an exception. Now, I think that's where we're headed, that the national security exception, which is obviously getting far more of a workout than even the drafters of GATT 21 could have imagined, will be held to a higher bar. The bar will be even higher once we do what hasn't been done in the two rulings to date, which is to establish what essential security interests are and then get onto the nexus between these and the measures being offered. All right, let's take a step back and start from the beginning. GATT 21, GATT's 14 beasts, and TRIPS 73B. They're all national security exceptions, so we have the exception across goods, services, and intellectual property. The language that got everyone excited in episode 14's context was, it considers necessary for the protection of its essential security interests. Back then we queried whether it considers necessary is one or two phrases. It considers on the one hand and necessary on the other, or is it it considers necessary as one? Now, we've had arguments on both sides of the coin. We've had in particular, Russia and Saudi Arabia in their respective cases arguing it considers necessary is non-separable. But we've also had wild enthusiasm on the part of third parties that it is separable, i.e. it considers can be separated out from necessary. And necessary is the magic nexus. But nexus to what? Therein lies the link back to essential security interests and my plea that this be, in the future, a lopped, appropriate level of protection. Now let's take another step back, 
Before DS-512, which is the Russia traffic and transit case, the big question was even more basic than anything I've hinted at yet. Is the national security exception even judiciable? DS-512 answers that unequivocally. It says in my favorite paragraph of the read, namely 7.77, national security is, quote, an objective fact subject to objective determination. Great, there you go. It is judiciable. That shifts the attention back to the nexus. The nexus meaning, what is the relationship between the measure on offer that is violating your other obligations under the WTO and your pursuit of something called essential security interests, given the temporal component of this emergency in international relations. We had a lot of input in DS-512 from third parties on this. Europe's third party submission was quite riveting as far as this stuff goes. Now, the point to Europe's third party submission back for DS-512 was to say, let's recalibrate and take seriously the word necessary and borrow on the case law from GATT 20, given that items A, B, and D all have the word necessary. So the point was necessary must mean something. It's doubtful that it means something different under GATT 21 versus GATT 20. So let's go learn. Canada was a little leery of learning too much from GATT 20, but certainly felt that there had to be some emphasis, if not a lot, on the nexus. Moreover, if GATT 20 is informative in this regard, it's not just the necessary part meaning a nexus, it's also a search for a less trade restrictive alternative. Here too, DS 512 helped. It said, and this is important, the further removed we are from armed conflict or a situation of quote, breakdown of law and public order, the greater the specificity in terms of that nexus, we need. So imagine a continuum which Qatar paints in DS-567, Saudi Arabia protection of IPRs. The continuum goes from normal relations on the one hand to all out war on the other. So the panel in DS-512 says, the further you get away from the extreme of armed conflict and war, i.e., a complete and utter collapse, including verging on law and public order, the more you've got to firm up this nexus. Did Russia do this? This is something that gets played out in DS-567 as well. The panel says in DS-512, Russia Traffic and Transit, that Ukraine and Russia are near, quote, hardcore conflict. But it says Russia has, quote, not explicitly articulated the essential security interests. It therefore finds that this is, quote, minimally satisfactory. There were some broad references to a state of emergency back in 2014. And DS-512 says, good enough. We've checked the box. We said it was judiciable. It is. It's an objective, knowable fact. But come on, they're shooting at each other pretty close to the extreme, our work is done. DS-567 takes that as its point of departure. 
in Saudi Arabia protection of IPRs, they look back on DS-512 and they say, wow, that was minimally acceptable. Therefore, it's clear. Not quite. The panel actually gets a little confused in 567 and begins to work itself into a corner. And that really is what is most compelling about DS-567. What should have happened in Saudi Arabia protection of IPRs was we would have gotten way more attention to the nexus because Qatar and Saudi Arabia aren't shooting at each other and they're not on the verge of public disorder. That means that there should have been way more specificity demanded of Saudi Arabia in tying its measures to this state of emergency in its international relations with Qatar. Now, Saudi Arabia comes out swinging. It has a very hardcore view of its abilities under TRIP 73B to essentially comment and move on. It says, one, 73B is not judiciable, and two, it vows it won't comply no matter what the panel says, so therefore the panel should spare itself the energy and simply not render any verdict whatsoever. Simply record that 73B was invoked and call it a day. Saudi Arabia goes further. It says, quote, a WTO dispute settlement panel is not capable of resolving the national security matter at issue. That's fine. It's not being asked to solve the national security measure at issue. It's being asked to gauge whether there is a viable affirmative legal defense here that excuses other infractions with respect to Saudi Arabia's commitments under TRIPS, namely with respect to intellectual property. Moreover, this ex ante declaration of noncompliance is itself an existential threat to the WTO. Because you can imagine that this doesn't just follow from a national security invocation. You could have had Europe vowing never to comply with a panel ruling on genetically modified foods and instructing the panel, therefore, not to bother, much like what Saudi Arabia did. Now, the weird thing about 567, the Saudi case, is that the panel ultimately struggles in figuring out what is the measure? Is the measure the fact that the two countries are having a problem or is the measure the line item legal claims being made by Qatar on the offense concerning intellectual property? The severance of diplomatic or consular relations is deemed by the panel to be the ultimate expression of an emergency in international relations. But the question is, is that really the measure or measures? Now, Saudi Arabia takes a tough view in this one. And this is important for all the implications drawn about the national security exception of the WTO. Saudi Arabia says, we don't have to tell you squat. We're gonna proceed based on the fact that there's an emergency and what you observe may not itself be in any remote way correlated with the emergency per se, but that's just because we don't have to shed light on how we are responding to said emergency. Now, Qatar and Japan, as a third party, step back and they say, this is becoming tautology. If you cut diplomatic ties, and that is both the emergency in international relations, as well as the action taken, which it considers necessary to pursue its national security objectives, isn't that in fact tautology? 
the panel knows it's up against this. It realizes that it has kind of talked itself into a bind. Now, it's got a couple of things to juggle. The first is that it's got this broad measure called an anti-sympathy collection of measures. And it rules that it meets the minimum requirement of plausibility in relation to the preferred essential security interests of Saudi Arabia. Its test for itself is, are these efforts, quote, so remote from or unrelated to Saudi Arabia's essential security interests? It then does a weird thing. It looks back on 512. It says, look, there's a minimum requirement here. They've kind of cleared the bar in as much as they've minimally done something that is minimally satisfactory. Therefore, we're good to go. No, that's not what the panel said in DS-512. We are not on the verge of war. We are not on the verge of public disorder. And this is tautology. To insist that at one and the same time, the suspension or severance of diplomatic and consular relations with Qatar is both an end and a means is bizarre world. Now, the panel says, yeah, but come on, this is rare. It says it might not have been rare in the past, but it's rare today for two countries to completely sever diplomatic relations. Okay, but what is that? Is that the measure or is that the end in itself? Japan held the panel to a high bar, but the panel didn't see it necessarily that way. But nonetheless, it does deliver on some nexus. How so, you might ask? That's because while the panel ultimately rules that the anti-sympathy measures, plural, in Saudi Arabia, which include not enforcing criminal penalties on those in Saudi Arabia violating Qatar's and other countries' intellectual property rights, makes no sense in light of what's going on between the two countries. In other words, the anti-sympathy measures clear as a whole but that only precludes having representatives in Saudi Arabia interacting continuously with Qatar IP holders. What it doesn't preclude is the enforcement of criminal penalties in the event that, in fact, you've got theft of Qatar's and others' intellectual property rights. Now, I have my concerns for how the panel arrives at this and what it ultimately means. I'm convinced the fact that Saudi Arabia was stealing a lot of different countries' IP had a big role to play in how this verdict came down. Namely, Europe weighs in and says, how is it that Saudi Arabia stealing our soccer coverage is contributing to their national security? We're not involved. We're not invading. We're not doing anything that remotely looks like anything other than televising Soccer games, that had a big role in this. You've got too many third parties being hit by what Saudi Arabia is doing. And it doesn't make any sense to link those. Had those third parties not been tied up in this, one big question is, would we have gotten much the same ruling? I'd like to think so, but I gotta say, those third party implications certainly made a difference. 
but it comes down to this non-application of criminal procedures and penalties. There's no correlation between doing that, i.e. giving a free pass to those who steal cutters and others IP and pursuing essential security interests at a time of no war and no public disorder. What's interesting as well is that there's simply no temporal connection here. You see, what's often forgotten in a lot of this discussion about national security exceptions is that there is in times of, there has to be a temporal connection. And a lot of cases that are proposed now as being things like the need to reshore in the name of national security will lack that temporal dimension because in vacuo, you'd be arguing the same thing as well. So this temporal connection is key. Back to the nexus. Saudi Arabia not only argued that TRIP 73B was non-judiciable and not only vowed that it wouldn't comply no matter what the ruling, and by the way, it has appealed into the legal abyss with the appellate body no longer working, Saudi Arabia also said, we're not interested in hearing your reflections on the nexus. That in contrast to everything that we thought we learned under DS-512. But Saudi Arabia commits an interesting error. And this error is going to reverberate for a long time. Saudi Arabia has no doubt that there's got to be good faith. It says repeatedly, we will not listen to the thoughts of the panel on the nexus, but we will allow the panel to think about good faith. But the way it frames the good faith tests look a lot like the nexus. It's the connection. It's the link, both temporally speaking and just commonsensical. In fact, the more you read Saudi Arabia's mentions of good faith, the more you realize they had no choice but to essentially concede to a pretty in-depth scrutiny of the nexus. The nexus is here, but the nexus has to be done a little firmer. DS-512 was not licensed to skate on this issue. The panel in DS-512, Russia Traffic and Transit, had said they're pretty close to, quote, hardcore conflict. Qatar and Saudi Arabia, not so much. And simply identifying that there could be something that is not wholly unrelated to an emergency in international relations, and then deeming that to be minimally satisfactory is not up to the task. In other words, the panel didn't do enough in 567, and it misunderstood its marching orders from 512. On appeal, when the appellate body is back in operation, my hope would be that there would be a much more stringent test, that the Qatar-Saudi case is nowhere close to that end of the continuum that forgives any and all transgressions. What DS-512 said was, the closer you are to the extreme on the continuum that looks like all-out war or public disorder, the less specificity you need between your essential security interests and the measures taken. But shy of that point on the continuum, you had better have, quote, greater specificity. The panel in 567 did not hold Saudi Arabia to that. It knew 
given its reflections on Japan's third party testimony, that it was in fact engaging in a little bit of tautology. But in the future, the bar is gonna be higher. And my hope is that once the appellate body gets its hands on five, six, seven, it will be a lot higher. There's a lot more to this than simply claiming national security, however defined, and getting a pass. This is interesting language. And the language is finally coming to light. But for all those who believe that national security can be post-COVID redefined in terms of public health and other things deemed to be crucial in fighting a pandemic and that that might be used to forgive any and all transgressions with respect to other GATT or other obligations under the WTO, not gonna happen. That is not what this is. We've learned a good bit about national security as an exception given 512 and 567. But the bar is going to go up once the appellate body gets a hold of 567, or at least I hope it does. But no matter what, that firming up of the nexus along the continuum is going to mean that a lot of stuff that is being sold right now as potentially fair game for the national security exception won't pass legal muster. And that's an important cautionary tale for those who would willy-nilly invoke national security as a get-out-of-jail-card-free.